Hi everyone, and welcome to Completely Beatles. My name is David Dedrick from the Sneaky Dragon Podcast. And I'm Ian Boothby. I occasionally listen to that podcast. And it's a good podcast. You can hear it on iTunes or uh, go to www.sneakydragon.com. Or Stitcher. Or Stitcher. Mm -hmm. But let's put that aside. Let's put that aside. And enter the world of the Beatles. The Beatles. This week we're going to be talking about uh, their single, I Feel Fine, and then also the album Beatles for Sale. So uh, let's get to it, because there's lots to talk about, I think. I think so as well. So um, let's start with a single, I Feel Fine. That came out before the album, so I always feel like we should do these things chronologically mm-hmm. as much as we can. Now, I like I like the title of this one, because we haven't seen the Beatles for a while. They've been away. And what do you do when you see someone you haven't seen uh-huh. for a while? How are you? How are you? Answered. They feel fine. They feel fine. Yes. So they feel they feel non-committal actually because feeling fine isn't really. I think the kind of fine they feel here is Mm -hmm. a happier fine. Yeah, I think fine back in the '60s was a lot more intense than it is now. Okay, because we're you know we're more settled in our ways here now. But back then things were harder, Mm -hmm. and so if you felt fine, that was a fantastic day you were having. Yes, Mm -hmm. and it's interesting because uh, Lennon wrote this one, and he, I mean, he wrote this one in the midst of writing the album actually, Beatles for Sale. Beatles for Sale was started in August, and then they had a major tour, and then they did more recording in October for it. And so in between that, those recordings, um, he was working on I Feel Fine. And so you have some of these kind of downer songs that kind of open Beatles for Sale. Oh, it's a downer album. But in order to get to, in order to get, you know, the A-side, the much-coveted A-side, he uh, wrote this song that I Feel Fine, you know, Baby's Good to Me, all these really happy happy things whereas um and actually what's interesting is that there were other songs were being considered as singles eight days eight days a week definitely was being considered as a single yeah i could see that for sure and then also i'm a loser those were two songs that were kind of being mooted as possible singles until lennon came up with i feel fine Mm -hmm. and then they just just wiped everything else out and everyone agreed that was the song you know because it's just such a riff song with a you know it has this great riff and then it has you know these really upbeat lyrics and it's a really happy song and so well it feels almost like uh you know she loves you uh but it's the first person version of it because mm-hmm. she loves you was everything's working out for you you got to pay attention to everything's great things okay. are great you listen buddy things are great and this one the guy is going hey things are great things yeah. couldn't be better yeah. things are swell and I, I almost like when I was listening to the, and we'll get to the album itself, I could have used this song in that album because there are so many bummer songs in mm-hmm. the album. Mm-hmm. It's a bit of a, it's a bit of a, you know, I enjoy the album, but it's a bit of a downer album. Okay. So it's interesting that we're coming into it with uh, such an upbeat yeah. single. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but, you know, the singles, I think, in their nature had to be upbeat. Like you, it would have been hard. I mean, as the Beatles went on, they became more more uh, confident in what they released as singles, and so they were less they were less um, what would the word be less strategic, less yeah you know ha- you know the, there was more thinking about what they were going to release as a single at this time than later. Well, that's what I wanted to ask was like by this point are are the audiences on board enough that they don't have to put all the safety valves on that they would have had to have before? Well. I mean, as we go along, we'll see that the audience is never, you're never safe with your audience. Mm. But, you know, this is, what well, we should remember, this is the height of Beatlemania. It's still crazy town for the Beatles. They, you know, they were touring like mad. I mean, when they finished A Hard Day's Night, they toured again. You know, and Be- Be- Hard Day's Night was just in the charts when they started working on Beatles for Sale. So they finished Hard Day's Night and almost immediately started working on, on Beatles for Sale. Now, had the film been a hit as well? The film was a big hit, yeah. Okay. 
Hard Day's so, Night was a huge hit. All right, the so album was a huge hit. So they're movie stars. They're, they're movie top stars, of the charts. Top of the charts. And we are now going on a world tour. Mm-hmm. So as soon as basically as soon as a Hard Day's Night was done, they were out touring not just North America, but they're out in Japan and the Philippines. You know, ch- you know, doing this big tour in Australia. And in fact, that's when Ringo Starr actually didn't tour in Australia because he he got sick. He um, had to go into the hospital, and so a different drummer played for the Beatles. Oh wow! In Australia, a guy named Jimmy Nickel, and that's where the we'll get to it later. But we'll just mention it briefly that that's where the title for "It's Getting Better" came from. Was that was kind of became his catchphrase, which was you know, "How's it going, Jimmy? It's getting better." Because it would have been a really shock, a big shock for this guy, you know, to go from very you know relative anonymity. To suddenly playing in the Beatles. Now, um, Pete Best isn't waiting by the phone at this point, going like, "Oh, Ringo can't do it, eh? I'll just, uh, I'll just stand here by the ringer. Uh, they should be calling any time." And uh, and uh, no one's uh, giving me a call. I don't. The Beatles were in a band that looked backwards. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think that that was part of their makeup. They just picked up a nickel and they, went on their way. They went on their way, exactly. The best was behind them. The best was behind them. So in the in the midst of all this craziness, mm-hmm. touring and recording, and not just recording records, but also doing radio sessions and TV shows and everything else that goes along with what, what was going on for them, you know. So in the midst of this, they're making this album, you know. So so I think that's why you can kind of see a certain um, downer element to okay. it in the sense of, you know, where they were that, you know. Because, you know, of course, when you want to be famous, it's very exciting. And when fame starts to come, it's very exciting. And so you get, you know, you get um, with the Beatles. Yeah. And that excitement of, of the onrush of fame and the Hard Day's Night, that and, excitement, that accelerated pace of then you life. get the degree of fame the Beatles got, which yeah. no one ever got before and yeah. no one has ever had since. Yeah. And, yeah, it's in its own level. It's its own level where everything that you do and every person you know is under a microscope and an incredible amount of attention and some like it and some don't, mm-hmm. you know, and some of the Beatles liked it and some of the Beatles didn't, you know. And so you had this, you know, not only outside of the group dealing with, you know, your family and stuff like that, who are who are also dealing with this fame, but you yourself as a group dealing with it and working, you know. And I know that we've said they're young people, but it's still exhausting. There's still an exhausting pace that they're they're working at. And not only are they, you know, just playing and touring, but they're also having to write mm-hmm. and be creative in this in this you know in this vacuum i mean it must have been so dull you know going from hotel room to hotel room you couldn't go outside the beatles couldn't go outside and and shop or anything they just would have been ripped to pieces so their life was just room to room yeah you know they go room into a car onto a stage back into a car back to a room onto a plane into a car into a room and that was it for them you know they didn't get to go to the beach they didn't get to tour around they didn't get to see the city they they may they might have gone to every city in the United States, and they saw nothing of those cities. Yeah, it feels to me when I look back at, like, the footage and stuff, uh, you know, they don't know, uh, because, again, it's uh, it's so new. Mm. They, I mean, I mean, British, pe- British people in general weren't ready for that amount of fame. Like, you don't have that. No. you got your class system. You're the yeah. working class guy. Yeah. Now you've you've jumped out of that system yeah. to be something completely different. But I look Not at that, you're part of the breakdown of the system. Yeah, but you know, yeah, I so also... you're part of this whole revolution. But I look at the fans as well and go like, they, they don't understand it. They've never had to deal with this kind of thing before. I mean, yeah, you've had girls yelling at Elvis, mm. but not to this insane degree. Yeah. You know, so they're, they're swept up in a storm that they don't understand either. Mm. And everyone's just confused. Well, you posted uh, the Beatles playing here in Vancouver at Empire Stadium. I put that, yeah, on our Facebook on page. On our Facebook page. And when you, you know, if you know Vancouver at all, we're kind of a laid back town. 
even in those days, Vancouver was kind of a, not necessarily laid back, it was more of a tough town. Mm -hmm. It was a very working class city, you know, where basically it was, you know, populated right. by, I, you know, had, you know, people who worked tough jobs, whether you're working in the docks, lumberjacks, fishermen, that, that was a big part of the population here. Well, our, our flag at that point was uh, someone punching someone in the face. <laughs> yes. Yes, I've seen that uh, yeah. in real life. And um, our bird was a was a rabid beaver, yeah, our national bird. Yeah. I've seen adults behaving in that ma matter at, at football games here mm -hmm. after football games. And so um yeah, and when you listen to when you listen to that concert and it's not in a huge Empire Stadium wasn't a huge facility. Nope, not very big at all. But it just sounds like a jet is taking off through the entire concert they're performing. And I, I did listen to part two because I felt like I was getting enough of the experience that I, I needed. But I know it was cut short, cut short, uh, and they only performed for a very short time because the audience was was losing it, and you know their safety was at issue, and so the Beatles had to to leave. And so you know not only are they, not only are they having to create in this fact, they couldn't even like be creative on stage. Their act was just like. You're probably the same everywhere they went. Yeah, exactly. You have no the same. room for banter. No room for banter. No room for for creativity. The no you can't stretch it out. You can't, you know, do a, a different kind of solo because no one can hear anything anyway. So it's just you're just playing and you're playing in noise. Mm -hmm. You're basically it's like you're playing behind a jet. You know? Yeah, you're not a you're not a concert. You're an experience at that point. Yeah, yeah. you're something they'll talk about later, mm -hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. and that's what it is. Yeah, they were there. I mean, that's the nice thing is like you know later on each of them had a level of fame. I mean, everyone still maintained their level of fame, but their fame went down to a point where they could actually perform mm. and people would hush yeah. and listen. Yeah. You know, and when Paul McCartney does a concert now, everyone shuts yeah, up and listens to the song. Listens to this. And then they give them some applause, mm -hmm. you know, but back then, yeah, I don't think no one was prepared. No. And the girls were not prepared. No, they, and they hadn't introduced the lighter yet. <laughs> so, you know, they didn't know what to do. They oh, if they, if they had the lighters then, everyone would have been set on fire. <laughs> Most likely. Well, they would have. With all that hairspray they wore back then, it would just been this blue flame would have just come up, and it would be burning to this day. It would have been That's the great. Possible. Yeah, it would just be this tragic thing. Anyway, we've gone through one single so far. We've got. I just to want to bring up something. Well, we okay, can bring it up ahead. with with. Uh, let's just go on to "She's a Woman." All right, which is the B side. Which is a B side, and which is one of the song, one of the Beatles songs that I remember hearing. You know, there's certain Beatles songs that I remember where I was when I first heard it, mm -hmm. and other ones just seem to be part of. The life's rich tapestry. You know, it is part of that background of life that you always heard that song, and you don't remember when it what when it, there was ever a time that you didn't hear it. Yeah. But she's a woman. I was sitting. I was actually working at that time, uh, in a parking lot uh, in New Westminster, and I was cashing out, and I was just sitting in the office in the in the quiet, just cashing out, and it came on the radio. There was just a radio playing, and it started playing this song. Oh. I'd never heard this Beatles song before. That's odd that would play that. I mean, yeah. you don't often hear like a kind of obscure B side. But go ahead. Yeah, and and I just. And that's it. It's, it's kind of an obscure B-side. And I, you know, I wasn't, I had gone through a, a big Beatles phase in my teens. And then I kind of rejected them in my late teens because I'd become a kind of, you know, only 80s music was, was real music and everything else was, you know, hip, kill hippies and blah, blah, blah. So, um, so when I heard this song, so, I, you know, I'd heard a lot of like mid-period uh, Beatles, but I hadn't heard everything. Like I hadn't heard like all the B-sides and I, you know, and so when I heard this song, it just blew my mind. You know, because it, it's such a weird song. You know, it's got that that offbeat guitar part. You know, this that playing that, and then basically what drives the song is Paul's bass. Mm -hmm. It's like it's his first like major bass line where it's just like this crazy complicated bass line that only Paul McCartney. I mean, Paul McCartney basically created that style of melodic bass playing, and you really hear it Ooh. in beginning with this song. And um, 
Oh, one thing we forgot to say about I feel fine, but we'll just oh, go back to that in a second. I just want to. Do I you want to just go about. back to my I feel fine? Just for a second, because it well, is... well, I got something to say about my I feel fine as okay, well. Okay, because I just want to say go something ahead. about the technical part of it, yeah. which is it's. She's a woman beats it in terms of being recorded before it, but I feel fine. Well, when it's the first recorded incident use of uh, feedback on a on a record. Oh, at what part? Like what part? Uses the opening it? of the song has that of uh, I feel fine. Oh, okay, all you, right. You hear Paul play uh, a bass note. I think it's like an A, and he plucks it, and he's like, and then you hear this. And there's two stories. One is that it was an accident that that John leaned his guitar against an amp, uh, and it got feedback, and which interesting is it wasn't like he wasn't playing like a truly electric guitar he was playing an acoustic electric guitar a gibson i think it's a j160e mm-hmm. he was playing for that on that song and so the story is that it was a- accidentally but it was recorded and so it was edited onto the beginning of the song oh neat okay but i've also heard they're really s- good for accidents that work out in oh, their favor yeah. well, they became really into the random as, as their career progressed yeah. and um so that's one thing and then the other is that it was just you know a you know, it was just the guitar, the note was plucked while the volume was turned down. And then it was turned up and John put the guitar towards the amp to, to create the feedback. So it was either intentional or unintentional. So it's hard to know for sure. But it was a definitely a, a unique sound. Um, in I Feel Fine, something I, because I always like mentioning things that have been mentioned in previous songs. Yeah. Our, uh, there's the line, he buy, uh, her baby buys her things, you know, uh, mm-hmm. he buys her diamond rings, you know, uh, in, uh, you know, in Can't Buy Me Love. I'll yep. buy you a diamond ring, my friend. And then she's a woman. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And then, it, yeah. Oh, and she, yeah. And she's a woman. Uh, the love don't give me no presents. So by that point, it's gone from, you know. Yeah. I think he met, doesn't he not mention diamond rings themselves in that song. Well, let me tell you, I can't see it. Okay. Maybe I I'm got wrong. the lyrics maybe in front I'm, of me. Nope. Maybe he, I'm he's, the he's, two, he's mentioned in the previous song. Yeah. He yeah. gives her presents yeah. in the second song. Here, here, here's well, the thing. As I said before, I don't. They didn't care about the words. All right. So the, which something is like what, diamond rings, which is why I have to, Dave. Yeah. So something like diamond rings, it's it's a filler, you know, and it fills in. It rhymes with lots of words, and it, and it's just a filler. And it, it just, just feels something. like there was a lot of uh, giving of diamond rings back in those days, <laughs> which doesn't seem like a casual gift nowadays. No. Maybe diamonds cost less then. I'm not. I'm not quite sure. Um, but yeah, the, you, with I feel fine. Of course, it's starting with everyone's fine. I'm just going to go with the narrative that I see leading into the album. Uh, it goes, I feel fine. Mm-hmm. But then in She's a Woman, yeah. uh, things seem to be good. But uh, but they mention there that uh, she don't give the boys the eye. She will never uh, make me jealous. Yeah. Now, whenever someone says something like that, that's a good red flag. That, like, they're the jealous type of guy. Yeah. And probably she's going to do something small at some point and set the guy off. So I'm just saying, we're starting at the very beginning of this episode and at the beginning of the, with the singles. Things are great. We've just now had a little bit of a red flag in the second song. And we'll see where things go when we get to the album. Um, the other well, the interesting thing about the bass part is, is because it was so prominent in the song, mm-hmm. it's, it was super loud. It's very it's louder than most times you hear a bass in a, in a Beatles song. But the, but whenever Paul McCartney goes off of the main triad, it's out. It, there's lots of ducking, whereas the, the engineers turn it down. Mm-hmm. They keep turning it down through the song, and then it comes up a little bit, and then they turn it back down because they're they're always worried about the stylus jumping. Uh, whether when they're mastering it or when people are playing it at home, that it, it, it won't play properly. Oh, interesting. So, and it also sounds like there's some uh, maracas or something going on to that thing. There's a lot of... Yeah, probably a chacalio, I think it's called. Oh, what's that? Is that the shaky thing? It's like a shaker that you shake sideways, not like maracas, which you play holding onto handles. You hold it the whole... Kind of shaped like a like a cucumber. Okay. It was the shake weight of its day. And you shake, shake, yeah. And uh, and then also has piano by McCartney in it, but just as in, as texture. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a new use for for 
for the piano as well. It's a really interesting song. And this, how now here's a question I've got for you: When they went on tour, mm. uh, did they ever uh, do any piano in the uh, in the act, or was it all they had a they had a a Hammond organ or a Vox organ? Oh, okay, so they would go off. They played. And do... yeah. oh, all right. If I you always... watch the Candlestick Park, the final the final concert, John Lennon uh, plays plays it mostly with his full arm and his elbow yeah. and stuff like that because no one could hear it anyway. So he's just goofing around on it. But yeah, they had the the full. Yeah, interesting. Cool. Okay, cool. And then also, it All features right. the the line. Well, one one thing I like is the what you said there. Uh, it does make me jealous. But I like it that it lines with as well as. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. That but then um, there's a line in it which is it turns me on, which Lennon insisted Paul McCartney put into the song because it was a drug reference. Mm-hmm. And then that would be a signal to to Bob Dylan, who thought that they said I get high in in uh, I want to hold your thing and I want to hold yeah. your hand when they said I can't I get hide. High. But they yeah. said, I can't hide. Mm-hmm. He heard it as I get high. And so he thought that they were very, well, we can talk about that in a little bit because that will come in and we'll just try and keep it chronological in, the, in history as well. So, okay. So she's a woman recorded before I feel fine, but obviously both released as a single in November. The actual Beatles for Sale album came out in December. It was a, the Christmas, December 4th in the UK. When I'm giving release dates, I just want to let people know that I'm usually giving the UK date just because they usually were ahead of the U.S. date. Mm-hmm. Most cases. I think I Feel Fine came out in the U.S. before it came out in the U.K. In the U.K. it came out the 27th of November. I think it came out like a few days before. Um, but I'm quite certain the Beatles for Sale came out before it came out in the States. Mostly because they had to take songs off it and add other songs to it to create a different song so they could turn one album into three. Oh, okay. That's what they usually try to do at Capitol. <laughs> The jerks. So okay, let's let's move on to Beatles for Sale. All right, let's look at first of all the cover. Brilliant! Another brilliant cover from Robert Freeman, right? Who did with uh, did with the Beatles the famous shot of them with just their turtlenecks in the dark. That you might also like uh, in the Meet the Beatles cover. That's the cover they use as well. Mm-hmm, isn't it? Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, the original title with the Beatles. Yeah, and then um, also did the cover for a Hard Day's Night with the great uh, use of the the film strips with the Beatles in different poses and different looks. Which I think was a, a great idea. And this one's kind of like a basic look. Very basic. And, uh, and uh, George has the what became known as the turnip top, which yes. is the hair yeah. with a little uh, little sprig on top mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some people tried to duplicate. And they look very tired in the picture. They do look very and tired. there's no attempt to hide the reality of, of their busy, busy lives and their hectic schedules. And even the title itself, Beatles for Sale, implies something un- unartistic, something is just as a commodity. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's almost the Beatles... Um, which I think they did in in a in a way when they did the uh, butcher sleeve for tomorrow t- is it tomorrow today and yesterday that album that do you remember the you know the butcher yeah. sleeve which was kind of a comment on on how their albums were being uh, taken apart and and reconfigured by Capitol Records in the United States it was a com okay we can all right uh, that that's going to be many many months from now so let's just talk about that sure. really quick what I've read about that album cover was. They were doing their sh- they were doing their photo shoot. This was suggested to them. Mm-hmm. John was on board because yeah. he was just bored with the whole thing. Yeah. And then after that, um, George was kind of upset that he did it and was not happy with mm-hmm. that cover at all and just thought, oh, we're just being jerks. This is just gross for gross's sake. Yeah. So when it's like it's it's a com- you can read it as a commentary or you can say they were some bored guys just like well let's push well, the envelope. I mean I'm not saying the Beatles ha- thought of it that way, but it's definitely I feel like some I mean once again luck. And chance in the Beatles' career, you know, works usually works in their works favor until it doesn't. 
Well, I mean, it was released in the States. There was no one's had any problem with it until it actually went into record stores. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that, let's talk about that later. Okay. That now, now the, uh, going with a theme that we've had with uh, past albums, where uh, these are all albums that are difficult to order in the store. Like, uh, you know, here's... Because yes, it was so difficult to get Beatles albums at that time. What I mean, though, is by asking for them, oh, you okay. know, uh, where I was like saying, you know, do you have that album with the Beatles? Which one? With the Beatles? I know. Which one? Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, well, this one... Because they wanted everyone's lives to be an Abbott Casella routine. Yeah. Do you have the Beatles for sale? Mm -hmm. Yes, we do. What album would you like? I'd like the Beatles for sale. Of course they are. They're right here, sir. Yes. Yeah. Then we just go back into that again. Every <laughs> album, yeah, does become an Abbott and Costello routine. Uh -huh. Yes, up to a certain point. I think you'll still have it for the next album, too, I guess. Yeah. Do you need some help? Yes, I would like that album. So anyway. Um, Do you have the White Album? Which one? There are many of them. Now, this album, we talked about it in Hard Day's Night, but it's even supposed to be more pronounced in this album that it's supposed to have like this big Bob Dylan influence that John Lennon was going through his Bob Dylan period. And mm -hmm. and I think it's kind of a looking backwards Bob Dylan period, not a, a not a totally aware of the time. Because I think, I don't think John Lennon was the sort of person that was influenced in that way. I think that, I don't think he studied Bob Dylan and tried to figure out exactly what he's doing. I think he kind of got the, the gist of what Bob Dylan was doing and that was good enough. You know what I mean? He wore a hat. I'm going to wear a hat like Bob Dylan. He played the, he played the, a really kind of breezy harmonica. I'm going to do that in a couple of songs. And I've done it. I've done my Bob well, Dylan. Well, as a musician, you've got to be a mimic. And so, like, up until this point, you know, you would mimic the rock and rollers mm. that, uh, that, that you liked. You'd dress like them. You'd dress like the greasers until you're told to not dress like the greasers anymore. Yeah. And so you don't lose that mimicry. And so you see, well, what's going on now in the world? He's pop culturally aware, sees this, and, yeah, you will naturally ape it a little bit. Yeah. And, and, and probably not accurately because you don't know the heart of it or what, what led to it. You will just grab the surface elements and then well, hopefully you, you will get a little deeper over time. You but. can say that. But when you listen to the, al the album, you don't, I don't think you hear very much Bob Dylan like music either. I think you hear uh, that album has like, it has an incredible country and Western uh, style or element running through it, but not a Bob Dylan element running through it. Maybe maybe Bob Dylan in the pointed lyrics and some of the the more negative lyrical parts that are brought to it, but that's I don't where think I, in terms that's where of I feel with this one is it feels like the kind of album you do at this point where you are a bit more negative. This one's this one's more cynical than previous albums, and it's definitely uh, more bummer songs than uh, than than happy songs. Like I listened to this before I listened to uh, I Feel Fine. Like mm -hmm. I, I understand that came first. Yeah, but to me, when you think of the Beatles at this point, all you're thinking girls are screaming. They're up there yeah. bopping their heads. Mm -hmm. They're having a great time. The girls are screaming. They're running from the girls. And so you don't want to have a song starting off this album, which is uh, things are swell, fellas. Everything, girls love us. You know, and so you have in a row all these, yeah, things are rough. Things. Yeah, are rough. the first three songs are, are all kind of, I mean, I think I'm a Loser is more of a pastiche or more of a, like a joke song than, mm -hmm. than it is like a serious song. Well, then right? let's go through the songs, my friend. Sure. Well, let's start. Well, let me, before we do that, let's oh, just no, talk a little bit more. Oh, no, general points. Go ahead. Because, um... I just, I just want to also point out that, um, because of, the, because of, you know, we talked about before about their hectic schedule, the fact that, you know, things were going crazy for them. A lot of the songs, although they were written while they were touring, they weren't fully developed. Like they didn't play them on stage. You know, there's no way to fit those songs into their stage act at this, at this time because people were just screaming and yelling. There's yeah. no way to hear what you're doing. So most of them are brought into the studio and kind of created in the studio, whether that was adding a middle eight or figuring out how the song was going to have it be introduced or, you know, so th that was kind of created the, what would become their blueprint for, for albums as they went on, particularly later on in their career, you know, when they just would spend hours 
literally hours in the studio working on one song, you know, uh, because they just would come in with, with, so another thing I noticed when I was listening to it, and I listened to it quite a bit, um, is I think the Beatles, you know, the Beatles always improved. Like to me, the songs on Beatles for Sale are better, not necessarily better and better quality songs, but are better stylistically. Like they're better produced or they're more interestingly produced mm -hmm. than on me or with the Beatles. And so, so the problem for me though is that these really sophisticated songs that the Beatles are producing are suddenly like broken up by these old songs, you know, like, like old R&B songs and stuff like that. Yeah. That bugs me too. And it really, <laughs> yeah. And it really, even if the songs were good or great, they really are hard to listen to because they're so jarring in that, in yeah, that context. They do not, they're, uh, they're, they're your older friend that you brought to the party. And he doesn't really fit in. Yeah. But remember him? Remember yeah, him? we used to hang out with him. We liked him. He was uh, great. And he's still great. He just doesn't necessarily belong at this party. He's yeah. telling some racist jokes. He's getting a little too drunk. He's he's flirting with the younger girls. And you're like, well, you you you, you wish, you know, Mr. Rock and Roll Music would maybe just take a little walk. Yeah. Leave the party a little early. And the other interesting thing, I think, when you listen to the album, is that when you think about the Beatles are on stage, being shrieked at, playing their electric guitars, um. Most of the songs, the guitars are acoustic guitars. Even if there's a little bit of electric guitar in it, it has this huge bed of acoustic guitars in most mm -hmm. of the songs. And I think that, you know, only I feel fine did they not do that. You know, I feel fine is basically just uh, George and John with the same riff, just doubling each other on that riff, just make it makes it even more powerful, you know. But most of the songs, it's this, it, you know, like I'm like, uh, well, the very first song, let's talk about No Reply. There's, I don't think there's an electric guitar in it. I think it's all acoustic guitar, you know, so. But anyway, so what, what do you want to say about No Reply? About what do I want to say about No yeah. Reply? Um, I think it's one of the best stalker songs that there is. Aside yeah. from Every Breath You Take, I would say this is probably the best stalker song. Now, the weird thing to me about this song is, because it is a guy who's just like, he's, 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 he's just checking a girl out. Yeah. Like, in, oh, I see your, your light's on. I knocked on the door and you weren't there. Yeah. Hey, who's that fellow you're with? Mm -hmm. And, you know, clearly she's blown him off, but. You know, is there, now to me, like the Beatles at this point in their lives have stalkers for real. Like they, like as you were saying, they can't leave their hotel room because there's people there watching them at every, and it's weird that they would write a song about the other, the other side of that, mm -hmm. which is someone who is the voyeur, the stalker, the one who's, who's unloved, you know, watching this person getting more and more jealous, which is, you know, the flip of what they were going through themselves. Based on a song by, uh, called Silhouettes by The Rays. Oh, so it was a 50s doo-wop song. It's so, not, no, it, it's original, totally original, but just the con, the idea of watching someone you know, through a window, through mm -hmm. the curtains, that it was taken from that song that, and it was, it was repeated later on. There's a Burt Bacharach, Hell David song. Who's, uh, I think it's called Are You There with Another Girl? Uh, Dionne Warwick sang it. So it's interesting to hear it, a woman's point of view. Yeah. You know, um, you know, I see you there the, through the back of your window shade. Are you there with another girl? Or, well, jealousy it? has been a theme in Beatles songs. Mm -hmm. You know, and, it, and again, it, you know, it's, well, as it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a strong emotion. Absolutely. So again, like, you know, we've said in previous albums, you get the list of feelings teens feel. Yeah. And now let's do a song about each of them, which is weird in this one where there's almost all the negative off the top. Mm -hmm. But yeah, mm -hmm. jealousy for sure. If we just, we could just put a good album together of just jealous Beatles songs quite, quite easily. Yeah. Yeah. What's but funny, this is the stalking arrest. What's funny about Beatles for Sale? I think is it's kind of a neglected album. Like I, I bet you'd never really knew much no. about it. You I know, know some of the songs, obviously. You know some of the songs, but but you know, like it's 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 preceded by Hard Day's Night, and then it's followed by Help. Yeah. So it's got the two movie soundtracks on either side of it, and I think it, 
you know, and I think most people kind of forget about it. Like, like I say, I mean, to me, it has some of the, has some great Beatles songs on it. That's one of my very favorite Beatles songs we'll, we'll get to. But I also love this song. I just love this song so mm -hmm. much. That whole part in the, you know, I, I saw the, I think it's, I saw the light when it's him and Paul. Yep. Paul singing that part, which I think is kind of funny is that, um, Lennon was supposed to sing the high part in the song, but because his throat was so raw from touring, he couldn't reach those high notes. So so McCartney sang the high harmony, and then ah. Lennon sang the lower part in in that in that middle eight section. I'm going to ask you to take this out because I'm going to cough right now, sir. And <coughs> the other thing is, wait, wait, I don't want to have my cough in this. Oh, <coughs> it's a professional show. This one. Okay, there we go. And the <laughs> other, and the other thing that I think it's finally time that people celebrated the hand claps as a percussive device. Okay, song, all right. Doesn't that just make it in that part of the song when they're, you know, singing that part and they're clapping their hands mm -hmm. and it's being propelled by the driving acoustic guitars and it just really works. I mean, this is super great that, you know, and in fact, they liked it so much they actually did it for another minute in some, uh -huh. and then they decided because one thing the Beatles were great at was editing themselves and they really had a less is more uh, philosophy to their music and they just thought, nope, too much of a good thing. They cut it back to just what it is in the in the in the release version. Did they all do the hand claps, or was that just Ringo? yeah, all of them together? Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. Neat. I mean, it was just overdubbed, right? Because at yep. this point they were recording on four tracks, so they could bounce tracks down. They could, you know, have tracks, you know, isolated for to be able to control the how loud parts were. So, like, I'm sure in "She's a Woman," Paul's bass would have been recorded on one track just so it could sit above the rest of the instrumentation of that song. Yeah, I think there's a lot of parents who would uh, like it if hand clapping became a popular instrument because then they wouldn't have to pay for instruments for their kids <laughs> so next uh next up on the roster is i'm a loser i'm a loser another song supposed to be his dylan period because it's it's but to me when you hear it obviously it's more influenced by country and western sound which oh, this is a poor country, poor me song country yeah. and western is very popular in england mm -hmm. really popular in scotland but I, I think also popular in the northern england so would have been popular in liverpool but also the, you know what did the beatles start as it's a skiffle band and skiffle is just another kind of form of folk, folk music or, or country and western, western music, you know. So, you know, the, they're almost kind of returning to the roots on this album in a way and kind of re, you know, maybe they're a little tired of, of playing rock all the time because they're just touring and always doing the same songs and always doing these really fast songs. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of fun just to get out your acoustic guitars in yeah. the hotel room and sit and just kind of strum and play these songs. And so, you know, I don't really hear it as a, like folk song pastiche or whatever. I also think it's a kind of song definitely that uh, some kids are going to be able to relate to. A lot of kids are going to be able to relate to. You know, because again, you look at the Beatles and you think these guys are on top of the world. You want to hear a song like this that's I'm a loser. Now you can relate to them a bit. Mm -hmm. So that's fine. You're, well, br it, you're bringing your audience in. You're bringing your audience in because, you know, again, you're almost more phenomenon than band at this point. Commenting later in the song, Lennon said, you know, either I feel like I'm, you know, God Almighty or I just feel like I'm nothing, mm -hmm. you know. And this song is, you know, represent represents that kind of that time when you feel like you are a loser, that mm. you're not that great. And I just want to say one more thing about the Dylan thing, which is that some critics have said like him using the word friend in the song is like because Dylan uses it in "Blowing in the Wind," so that influenced Dylan. Mm -hmm. The thing is that McCartney already used it in "Can't Buy Me Love," is a major part of that song. Yeah, and it's buy all, you a diamond ring, my friend. Yeah, and it's also used in "I'll Get You," which you know. So, so I think. I don't like that. Uh, I just you disagree. I disagree with the Dylan All right, thing. Strong, I, I, I think it's there. starting off this episode with strong opinions. I think it's there. Harrison was the huge Dylan fan. He was a much bigger fan than anyone else in the okay, Beatles. I can see that. And and I think that um, I think I think it's kind of overblown a little bit. I think it's overblown. All righty, moving on to Babies, Babies in Black. Babies in Black. 
Oh this dear, is, what can I do? Babies in Black. This is a weird one to me, this song. Because it sounds like um, Johnny's... What's what's that song called? It's um, Johnny Comes Marching Home Again? Is no, that... Johnny So Long at the Fair. Oh, Johnny So Long at the Fair. It has a little bit of that. Okay, yeah, I'll give you that. I'll so give you that. It kind of, you know, it just may have grown out of them sitting in hotel rooms playing, you know, playing songs, you know, and it's kind of singing old songs and stuff like that. And then, you know, because they're looking for inspiration and so they're going through songs. Or they would have been playing old songs and playing old repertoire okay. and looking for ideas and stuff that would kind of spark new songs for them to do. And so, you know... I think it's, um, yeah, this was actually the first song recorded for the album. Now, I, I'm going to tell a quick personal story, which is sure. I used to uh, take guitar lessons, and one of the songs we uh, we learned was Paint It Black. And the mm. teacher uh, said to us, uh, do you know what this song's about? And we had a uh, class of us, and we all uh, had no idea. Of you course. Know? And I was going like, I don't know, you're like uh, the color black, and so you're too much color around here. It's too bright. It's like, no, it's about death. Mm-hmm. It's about death. And like, oh, we all felt dumb. So, um <laughs> So this, this is another song about babies in black and mm-hmm. uh, you know death. Now, now, am I getting this song wrong? Perhaps I am. But there's a there's a girl and her boyfriend died. Am I correct about that? And because this is what I'm getting, there's like okay. babies in black and I'm feeling blue. Uh, that she, he died and and he's jealous. The singer is jealous yeah. of this dead fellow. Yeah. And saying how you know uh, oh well, she only thinks of him. She only thinks of him. And yeah. when will she see the mistake that she's made? Yeah. What mistake? He's dead. Like there's no mistake. You can't take it. She can't break up with the dead guy. Yeah. He's as dead as dead can be. And also I'm thinking like. When I was listening to this, all right, well, clearly she's a teenager. Well, and she's and dating a teenager. So if the teenager dies, that's never for reasons that you're like, yeah, he had it coming. It's like either he's at war or a disease or a terrible car accident. And so you're really jealous of this temporary period yeah. where she's mourning, clearly still in wearing black. Yeah. You know, and you're like, oh, when's she going to get over this guy? This is of all the well, songs you know, in he here. He wasn't that great. Often death adds a you know, a, a sheen of, of, uh, of, you know, saintliness that's not, wasn't there at all. Okay. So, I'm just going like, you know, the you know. first song is kind of creepy, but this song is the creepiest. A guy who's like jealous. I don't find the first song that a, creepy. Of like, I'm watching you and your lights, uh, I see your lights on. Mm-hmm. Hey, you're going in with that guy, huh? Yeah. Like there's a fight that's going to happen in the first song. As soon as that guy leaves, you know, there's going to be a push, a push, and then there's going to be a glass bottle to the mush. That's what's going to happen. But in this song, that guy's dead. Like I can, I can actually see this is a sequel and this guy killed that guy. And now he's jealous because she's mourning the guy that he killed. Mm-hmm. Could be. Yeah. I just, uh. They they do murdery songs later, they do. So after so after the August sessions were over, <laughs> the Beatles. Well, I mean, what more can I say? I don't know. I'm just like, am I getting you, that song wrong? Like, what do you think the song is about? You don't listen to lyrics. I don't really listen to lyrics that much. So. Okay, so it's not, listen to the lyrics to this really one that, sometime. Not you know that what? To Audience, me. you tell me. Am I wrong? <laughs> is he? Is this the creepiest of all the Beatles songs? Except perhaps run for your life if you can, little girl. That's later on. But, you know, uh, but is it the creepiest? You tell me. Anyway, moving on. Dave, more information. Well, I was just going to say, after more information, I was going to say, after these sessions were done, the Beatles uh-huh. went on tour. They had to go tour in the U.S. And so it was during this time that the Beatles first met Bob Dylan. They were introduced by a journalist named Al Arano. I think his name was Al Aranowitz. But um, they were introduced, and Bob introduced them to marijuana. So this was the first time that they ever... They ever use marijuana? Now, in England at the time, was uh, was oh, marijuana sure was, being smoked? I'm sure it was around, but it wasn't in the Beatles' sphere. It wasn't in they were uh, they were on uh, amphetamines. They that were, was their thing. Well, they were kind of rum and coke guys. Right. They were more uh, more alcohol. I mean, they weren't amphetamine addicts. You know, they used amphetamines mm-hmm. to tour, 
but they were not using it in an addictive way. They weren't, okay. you know, they weren't using it when they didn't need to, unlike their manager. Yeah, I guess they were, they were using it because they were absolutely exhausted and were. I guess I'm asking, like, was pot, was pot popular in England in the rock scene? I'm assuming it wasn't. Well, there wasn't much would. of a rock scene. I okay. mean, the rock scene is being, or would a this be like scene. something like the jazz musicians yeah, of the time? Yeah, that would have be been doing. a hipster thing, right? They, yeah. they would have been more into the, the pot. Having a J. Having a J. Yeah, okay. So, uh, they go to, they go to America and Bob goes, have you met my friend Mary Jane? Yes. And they go, that's no, right. we have not. No, we have not. And then, Things change. Things change. That's right. So, you know, we're going to see a change in, in how the Beatles approach music. Mm-hmm. Because, you know... We're going to have a movie called Help very soon. Because drugs... will be very influenced by what we what's happening <laughs> yes, now. Yes, drugs became a big part of, of their lives. And particularly Bob... Or not, sorry, particularly John Lennon. And so... Um, Could I actually... Sorry, I'm going to interrupt you and say... Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, to, to me, I can see why they would be... Not necessarily that pot's a bad thing. But I can see why they would be especially vulnerable to this because... As you're saying, they're going from hotel room to hotel room. Mm-hmm. And if you can't go out, yeah. you better find a way of going in. Yes. And so this allows them to do that. And now you can take a little trip and not have people screaming at you and going outside. Because they yeah. are housebound. Yeah. So, you know, if there's ever a time yes, where you're going to... house arrest. That's right. Basically, they, yeah, they've got about as much freedom as someone who is under house arrest. So, yeah, I can completely see why, why you know, pot and later acid would yeah. be so appealing when you can't leave. Well, when, when Dylan introduced it to... When Dylan brought it up, he wasn't actually... He didn't come there to, you know, bring pot to the Beatles. He thought that they were already pot smokers because they said, I get high in their song. Right. I want to, and they were like, well, actually, it and says. What, and what they I really get, said was, I enjoy pie. I enjoy pie. And right. they were waiting for so long for someone to bring a delicious pie. Well, actually, they meant the mathematical symbol, pie. Oh, okay. That's what they actually meant in that song. Yeah. And so what, what I really like in the story, though, is that McCartney, well, one is he had what he thought was an out-of-body body experience. But there's a weird thing about the Beatles at, when they were very close was that they thought in terms of a collective. They didn't think in terms of me. They thought in terms of we. Mm-hmm. There's a story of someone asking George Harrison if he believed in God. And he said, well, we're not sure about that yet. He didn't answer it as an individual. He answered as a collective. I can completely so see it's that. So interesting. Yeah. And then the other thing I love about the story is Paul McCartney, he he felt like he was really thinking for the first time. And he got his ro- they got their roadie, Mel Evans. He got him to write down what he was thinking, which was, he wrote down, there are seven levels. That's all. Mm-hmm. So I just... There are seven levels. I don't know what. After the parking garage to the hotel, no one quite knows. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it was a very short hotel. The Hotel Del Monaco in New York City was where this happened. How many albums did the Beatles do? Altogether? Yeah. Well, not the singles, but just like the albums that we're going to be covering on this. I think... Please say seven. No, there's not seven. <laughs> ah, that's too bad. <laughs> no, That'd I be can't. exciting. I'm trying to think how many... I think that would be ten, ten or eleven albums? Maybe oh, eleven okay. albums. All right. All right. Too bad. Um. Yeah, so... Then, you know, yeah, because before that time, they were, yeah, they, like you say, they were, um, um, they used amphetamines. They used what was called preludin or prellies in Hamburg. Mm-hmm. And then... Because uh, they want more energy. You want to be more, yeah, you want, more of what you are. And, and, and pot does almost the opposite. It takes you, it, it takes you out of who you are. Mm. And I think like, again... It's not that they wanted more of what, they just wanted more energy because yeah. they were absolutely dying on their feet. But, they started doing it in Hamburg because they were playing... But you're a teenager, you know, you're a teenager, shows. you got infinite energy. You don't have infinite energy. Well, I know. You don't have... You, you imagine that as an adult. You feel it, that's right. But then when your infinite energy starts to go out, you need a little uh, help. And uh, that's your infinity. I'm a father of two teenage girls, and I have to tell you that I see very little infinite energy in their activities. Well, you don't show in front of your parents. I'm sure if the Beatles' parents, like, mm. you know, they go, like, Paul never cleaned his room. I'm sure... Whatever you say. I'm, I'm pretty sure Ringo's mom would say that. 
And I'm thinking about it now, like in like mod culture in England at this time. Yeah. Amphetamines were a big part of it. I don't know if you saw the movie, um, uh, the movie, uh, I can't remember what it's called now. The Who, you know, the Who, um, what's it called? Give me, not give me shelter, no, of course no. not. What? The, the kind of mod movie, Quadrophenia. Oh, there you go. You know, there's lots of, there's lots of amphetamine use in that, in that film because it was a big part of Dave, like, the I'm mod I'm a big scene. square. You can't ask me things like but that. But I, I guess, I'm sure pot, ex- you know, was around or hash would have been used, but more probably in the folk and jazz scene mm-hmm. and hadn't quite crept into the rock world yet, which but were I, very separate worlds. Yeah. You know, I very can, separate worlds. I can completely see how like, you know, everything is so intense, intense, intense that mm-hmm. it's a forced break that you can, that you can take and it's yeah. justified. And it also feels cool. You know, you want to feel like a bit of a rebel, you know, when you're the age the Beatles were then. And, uh, you know, if Bob Dylan's offering it to you, you're going to you're gonna take it. I'm sure there's people right now. Willie Nelson is giving them a joint. They wouldn't normally smoke it, but they're going to because Willie Nelson is giving them a joint. So let's move on to the next song, which uh, is the first cover. The jarring first cover where you're like, what? Yeah. And I mean... At it's the time, fine. You at know, the time, it's fine. People thought the Beatles had an unlimited supply of songs. Like, you know, they say they have 200 songs they've written, and uh, which wasn't true at all. They actually had no songs. Okay. They had no songs in reserve. You know, they wrote for the album. Like, they were given the information, you know, they were told in a month you're going to go into the studio to record, get some songs together. And so they got some songs together. But they were super busy. So, once again, they didn't have a lot of time to write new songs. So they have to turn to covers. The problem was is that they were doing almost all their own songs on stage. They were doing very few covers on stage. Mm-hmm. You know, what, we used to be an act almost entirely of covers when they were doing it in their Hamburg days or their Cavern days, where their originals were, were peppered in amongst mostly covers. And people would go, eh, I don't know about that. I don't know about the other the songs you're writing. I much prefer to hear... Yeah, it's the old, you know, it's yeah, the old concert thing. Music. Here's something from our new album. Boo! Yeah. So, so when it came time to do the album, you know, they didn't really... They hadn't really thought about or given much or even played these old songs that much. And so they they kind of... It's hard to just... Like, it's not as thought well thought out as the first two albums. There are no girls... There's no girl group songs, mm-hmm. which really are kind of winners or winning... Uh, Different, it it sort plays of different to their songs. strengths. Yeah. Girl group songs are harmony songs. Harmony songs and also but kind of sensitive and have a different element to them than the, the kind of regular kind of rockabilly and this or rock one, songs. Yeah. One, it's jarring. Yeah. Like, and also you've had like three sort of depressing songs in a row. Mm-hmm. And this song doesn't feel earned. Like it feels like <laughs> such, like one, stylistically it feels wrong, but thematically it feels mm-hmm. wrong in the album. It doesn't counter anything. It doesn't build on anything. It's yeah. just, this yeah. just showed up. It's and just, it's fine. It's like, okay on song. its own. It's your typical Chuck Berry advertisement for rock and roll song, which you yeah. wrote so many of, you know. Again, we've talked about this before, how it's, you know, we're not big fans, at least maybe I'm not, of a song that describes how much you enjoy that type of song while you're playing it. Yeah. You know, you don't want the disco song that tells you how much you love disco while playing and it. And ducks. Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah, so on. Now, here's a, here's a line in, in this that I've never understood. You know, uh, you know, he likes jazz unless you try to play it too darn fast. Yeah. Bebop. Uh, and then it, it sounds. I put down a bebop. Okay. But, uh, you know, you play jazz too fast. It sounds just like a symphony. Okay. Now, I've heard a lot of classical music <laughs> and I've never thought, man, this classical music sounds like really fast jazz. Okay. When you listen to a song that rhymes band with hurricane, I, I don't got think it. you I can. Got it. I don't just, think you I can complain it. about sen- lack it. of sense of the lyrics. I understand. The rhymes no, are No, no, that's the... terrible. It's almost unforgivable, that rhyme. Hurricane and band. <laughs> I can't stand it. You don't mind? Yeah, melody, symphony. Yeah, man, that's rough. But I don't think in any way jazz has ever sounded like a symphony when you play it fast. 
I think <laughs> no, the I faster you can play jazz and get it out of the way, yeah. the better for me. No one goes uh, like, hey, hey, buddy, <laughs> slow down that jazz. Let's have more of it. Oh, so you, you don't want to be part of my All Coltrane podcast that we're going to be doing after no, this. No, I'm not getting on the Coltrane, buddy. <laughs> I'm sorry. And then, yeah, this song played with great gusto uh, with, you know, George Martin on piano. It's all, it was done in one take. So well, it sounds just, like they're having fun. They're having fun, followed by... Followed by a short, a little kind of ballad, a little. Yeah. Now, now again, you know, it's like if you had "I'll Follow the Sun," you know, like in place of that song, we'd be fine. Mm-hmm. Like it would really go nice and smooth. Mm-hmm. But it's just this. Yeah, it's just this. It's not. It's not a, a drunk uncle just came into the room and broke your lamp. Yeah. Not and only he's is very it, nice, but get out of here, you. Yeah. Not only is it jarring with, but it's actually not the greatest sequence album. We'll, we'll talk about that as we go. But yeah, I would agree with you. I don't. I think I'll Follow the Sun, you know, rock and roll music being followed by I'll Follow the Sun. Right. It probably would have made a better transition between uh, Babies in Black and then rock and roll music. But once again, um, I'll Follow the Sun is kind of a callous song. It's not really yeah, the nicest song. Yeah, it's another bummer song. Yeah. You know, it, it would work in the whole, you know, we're going down the bummer train. You can mm-hmm. make your first half of your album all the drag songs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's fine. It's But, you know, the nice one about it's this not a, one. It's not a drag. It's it's good for the, the singer. It's fine. Yeah. He's a Rolling Stone. He has no connections with anyone. He's off. Well, He doesn't care different... what happens to this person he's leaving you've, behind. That's right. Like, you've started with. That's not a bummer. Well, no, he's for the, the person singing the song. The, bummer, the guy left behind. The bummer, it's a bummer is you're watching the relationship that got destroyed, you know, through the whole album. Um, like, but in this case, yeah, <laughs> Mr. Storyline. I am going with a storyline because you know, in the first song, you've got the stalker, and then it gets all mm-hmm. even creepier, and then the guy, you know, is like, "Oh, I'm envious of the dead." And yeah. then, but in this one, uh, they realize the relationship's over. But you know what? I'm moving on. I'm moving on. I'm leaving. Everything's fine. One day you'll you'll realize well, this was a mistake. But you know what? I'm cool with it. Mm-hmm. I'm leaving. He's not cool with it. You know he's not cool. <laughs> Anyone who goes like, I got no problem with this. Yeah, that guy's I'll got a problem with this. Yeah, I'm just going to go follow the sun. Okay, yeah, you do that. All right, and, and off he goes. But it's, a, it's, mm. it's, again, it's another, you know, she doesn't love me song. But this one, I'm going to, I'll make my peace and uh, I'll be on my way. Well, it's another example of uh, how desperate they were. This is actually one of their oldest songs. Is it this, really? Yeah, this dates from pre sixties. Oh, because this feel this sounds really Beatlesy. Yeah, like, this really f- sounds like it could fit. Well, it was written by Beatles. It was written by Paul McCartney. But it, mm-hmm. yeah, it was actually there. It was played in Hamburg. You would sit at the piano and play it. Um, it also, you know, I guess it reminds me, of course, of you know, here comes the sun. But it you, was. It's hard to not think of the, their two sun songs. Yeah, it was re- it was rearranged for, to be on this album. So it was it was. It was, uh, you know, they had made a new arrangement for it, so it was, it was updated in a way. So yeah. that's why you, you hear that. And I think it was originally going to have an acoustic guitar solo in it, and then they went actually with this George playing the melody. Okay. Very short, a very short little bit of the taste of the melody on the electric guitar, and Ringo didn't play the drums on it; he just slapped his knees. So we're using the hands earlier. Yeah. We're using the knees. Using the knees. We are working our way up to a spanking. <laughs> And anything else on, uh, on no, that song? No, it's not much you can say about it. And, uh, and clearly, now, now normally you say to me, Ian, you're coming mm-hmm. up with these themes, you're finding links that aren't there, you're just mm-hmm. making things up. Yep. You must be on some sort of drugs is what you're saying. Yes. Well, by the way, I'm not. I'm I straight arrow I think Bob Dylan introduced you to them. Yeah, he, he certainly did. Uh, but we're, we're going from I'll Follow the Sun till, mm-hmm. to Mr. Moonlight. Come on. There's there that's got to be on purpose. Am I wrong? We're going. I'll follow the sun to mm-hmm. Mr. Moonlight. Mm-hmm. No, just a just a it random might, chance. It could have been. It could, well, I mean, when they were sequencing it, that might have been intentional. I don't know. Okay, fair enough. Might have been why they did that. But, but you know, this song is generally hated by most people who who love the Beatles or write about the Beatles. Okay, explain why. I just seen as chintz as like a really kitschy song and not that great a song, and it's not really understood. It's the first happy song 
in this damn album. I actually love this song. Okay. I love the performance of it. You're I saying, love... people, uh, here's the thing. Normally when people say that, they go, yeah. you know what? People say yeah. that you're a real jerk. Yeah. What? Well, not me. Yeah. You know, but it sounds like you're saying yeah. the thing when you say people say, but okay. Like, it's the first one that's a happy relationship. You know, everything's fine. You know, we like saying mm-hmm. fine. They love the word fine, the Beatles. <laughs> but the thing I like, the, the thing I like the, uh, the, oh, one second, where are we going with this? Nope, I'm, uh, I'm mistaking a note I, I did for something later. Anyway, I'm just generally, generally I do like this song too. It's a great, well, the way John I, I didn't, sings I didn't it. hear it before. I'd never heard it before, yeah, so new to not. me. Yeah, probably not, right? And yeah, just, well, it's obviously it's a cover. It was originally by a, a group called Dr. Feelgood and the Medics, whose name, <laughs> whose name came from the fact that the first, it was on a single. The A side was called Dr. Feelgood. Uh huh. And the B side was Mr. Moon, was Mr. Moonlight. And yeah, it was actually a, a piano player named uh, Red Brown. Mm-hmm. It's Red Brown. And so, you know, I guess I don't know why he decided to not use his own name because he was a, a, a known musician, but it was, it was credited to Dr. Feelgood in Medics. And for whatever reason, it was a really popular song at RB. By the way, I'm going to laugh every time you say Dr. Feelgood. Okay. Okay, okay. go ahead. And, well, there, okay. and there was. Um, Sorry, one quick break again. <coughs> I apologize. I'm back. Go. I could see Dr. Feelgood right now. Just take care of the scoff. Sure. And there was, and there was, um, yeah, I was gonna say it was, it was really popular in R and B circles, and in fact, the Hollies did a cover of it as well, like about the same time the oh, Beatles okay. did. It's not nowhere near as good as the Beatles version. The Beatles version is just so great because John Lennon just his crazy singing of it is <laughs> so fantastic. And then uh, Paul McCartney plays the Hammond organ organ in it, then that Hammond organ solo, just wonderful. It feels like they're at an ice rink. It's just great. Oh, I miss the Hammond organ. I wish that would come back. <laughs> what's, but what's funny is they did this song yep. in their first sessions. And they actually re-recorded it, this version, when they came back. So this is this is their post-pot version of the song. Oh, okay. So I wonder if, if that kind of changed it a little bit, how they approached it, and gave it that kind of goofiness that it makes it a real winner. No, I do my, enjoy my this opinion. one. Yeah, and again, it was a pleasant surprise. I, you know, I haven't listened to all of these albums in total in the past. Yeah. Um, I don't know if we set that up at the top of the show, that you're more <laughs> the Beatles fan yeah. and I am the casual listener. Mm-hmm. So, but, yeah. So some of these are becoming delightful treats to me. <laughs> well, and it's a delightful treat that it's followed by, I think, one of the greatest covers the Beatles ever did, Kansas City slash Hey, 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 <laughs> exclamation mark, mm-hmm. which is a medley of two songs, a medley of Kansas City, which was written by Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, who wrote Hound Dog and Jailhouse Rock oh, okay. and songs like that, and did a lot of songs with the um, the coasters, like Charlie Brown and things like that. And, and then Hey, 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 which is a... A little Richard song. Oh, so this is a mashup. So yeah, he he, little Richard created this as a medley. And uh, how popular were these kind of uh, songs back then? These mashup medley songs. Well, it was this song. Was, I don't think it was a really because it was a B side to Good Golly Miss Molly, so it was all, obviously not intended to be like a big a big hit. Mm-hmm. It was used as a B side, and the Beatles actually toured with Little Richard and heard him perform it and put it into their act. Cool. And so, you know, so um, the song Kansas City was written like 1952 or something like that. And it was first written by a guy with the rather um, redundant name, Little Willie Littlefield. And he recorded it. And it was actually... I would laugh more at that if I hadn't just heard about Dr. Feelgood. Dr. Feelgood. And he, it, was, it, was, it was written as Kansas City. But when it was put on a, as a single, I think it was on the federal label. And the owner of the label, a guy named Rolf Bass, changed it to Casey Lovin. Instead of Kansas City, he changed it to KC Eleven, okay. and it was it wasn't a hit. Nope, it was not a hit. But it was a hit. Like six years later, a guy named Wilbert Harrison recorded it again, 
And it actually was a big, it was like Everyone a number one hit. Everyone had great names back then. Wilbert Harrison. Yes. Everyone had a great name. There is not a Dave Smith in this <laughs> world. If they were name was, was Dave Smith, they changed it to Dr. Feelgood. That's right. Or Red Brown. So, um, Punchy fist in your face. <laughs> so what's in, the other kind of uh, thing I like about this song is that um, it was recorded after they've been spending a lot of time working on eight, eight days a week. They would, because they're trying to think of an intro and an outro for it and working on it and work. And then Lennon was just sick of it. And it's kind of interesting because at what became a real thorn in the side of the Beatles later on, which was Paul's, you know, really finickiness about and fiddling with songs until everyone was sick of them. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, which, you know, really became an issue later on. It was still, it was obviously still could have been an issue at this time. But luckily there was moments like this where they could just kind of toss all this stuff aside and do a one take crazy version have fun where he just you know got paul really hyped up and got him going and the song was done in one take that's what you yeah. hear you're hearing one take of this song well i mean that's the thing when you have a band that's played together live so much you know they they have those skills and like bring them out and go to town yeah and now this is a, a completely silly thing but uh i always thought something that always bothered me about the wizard of oz uh musical mm-hmm. is and this will link to this i promise okay. you okay. is that it forgets halfway through that it's a musical and they stop singing songs yeah and so the latter half is just like you remember you're a musical right guys there's not a song after everyone's yeah. front loaded so many songs <laughs> and i always thought like when uh when dorothy's going back to kansas this would be a great song to sing then Kansas, just going to Kansas, Kansas City, City, Kansas City, here I come. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a, why not? Just a weird situation. Halfway through your musical, eh, we're not a musical anymore. We're bored, done. Yeah. So if we were back in the time of phonographs and LPs and okay. whatnot, Let's... this would have been the end of side one. Right. Would have stopped with this song. and Rich people would have had a machine that would have flipped it over for them, and that would have blown your mind. No. But anyway, so... Well, those came in the 70s. I remember I remember at least that much. One really? Of, yeah, one of our rich relatives had that business where a little uh, little hand came in, a little handle, and it flipped it over and put it back down, and then it, uh, yeah. Really? Yeah, it was Oh, impressive. it's possible it existed then. And that hi-fi know. also had a TV set in it. Oh, okay. Blew our minds. Anyway, wow. please continue. Yes. We had a cabinet stereo as well, but it didn't have a TV in it. But, so, we start side two with an upbeat song. Finally, we get kind of upbeat with eight days a week. Yeah. It feels like, it feels like they really cheered up. Like it feels yeah. to me like uh, like doing that last song made everyone feel better. Mm-hmm. Now let's have some fun on the album. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, we start with eight days a week. A lot of people don't know that uh, England uh, had eight days a week. That was until the Thatcher government cut it back down to seven. Well, it's been described as a Ringoism, but it's, it was apparently a common term in Liverpool to say, I, you know, if you've been working hard, you've been working eight days a week. So, oh, is that so, yeah. so you've been working hard? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Sounds good. Hey, this one really... Uh, feels Beatles-y. Like, it's, it feels like, oh, yeah. the Beatles just woke up. It's definitely... Hey, here they are. It definitely... Well, I mean, it was intended to be a single. Mm-hmm. So it was written in the sense that it was written and has a full Beatlemania sound to it. But it's almost kind of Beatlemania in decline. Do you know what I mean? So you're getting kind of like the the decadent Beatlemania. You're getting this kind of... It's it's not as heartfelt as I want to hold your hand. It's not okay. as heartfelt as she loves you. It is but packed it, with so many loves in this. Like, yeah, I mean it's really hitting it. It's mm-hmm. it's got everything in it but the woos. So you're getting you're getting this kind of uh, you're getting this kind of um, um, well I, 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 I can't think of the word. I just trying to think of it earlier, but once again I'll say you know strategic or you know this kind of uh, you know aimed at you know. The sense of, you know, this is what the teenagers want. This is yeah. what they're going to get. Well, this is... as and I Lennon called it a lousy song, which I don't think is true. No, but I think he meant true. lousy in the sense that it was... That they weren't being... It wasn't a heartfelt song. That it was writ- written to 
to be a single. It, was it written, hits the beats. Yeah. yeah, it hits the beats. Like yeah. to me, like as we've talked in previous albums, there's some songs and things they do that I think are scream bait. Yeah. That are this is where you will scream now. Yeah. yeah. And when you're going, when you got the Beatles going, hold me, love me, hold me, love me. I ain't got nothing but love, babe. Eight days a week. You're, you're getting the. You're mm-hmm. getting screaming. Yeah. This is hitting the holes. We love the Beatles telling us about holding things. We love love. Love is in there too. And then a nice catchy uh, chorus. Boom and out. Well, supposedly it was written as the um, as a possible theme for the next film, which at that time had the tentative title of Eight Arms to Hold You. And so that that's where yeah, okay. that also kind of came into it. I don't know if that's absolutely true. But during the session... And I can't, I always can't speak as somebody who's heard the sessions, but right. Mark Lewison in his book, The Complete Beatles Recordings, mentions that Lennon is playing the riff for I Feel Fine, like practicing it during the sessions for, oh, okay. for eight days a week. So even while they create this song as their quote unquote next single, its demise is being composed in the, in the midst of it. The bullet but, is being put in the chamber to kill this that's song. Right. Although I will say that it was a single in the States. It was because, um, because DJs were playing it as off the album oh, right. in the States. And it wasn't actually on that album that was released in the States. They were getting the British import, and they were playing 80s a week Now, let on me it. ask you this question. Back then, like, mm-hmm. uh, if you were a DJ and you heard a song you liked, could you take it off the album and play it as a single? Sure, if you wanted. You were allowed to do that. Because mm-hmm. I know... Oh, yeah, it wasn't... It's not as set as... I mean, nowadays, there's no DJ. People mm-hmm. just get computer programs with all the songs organized on right. them. Right. Back in the old days, you used to have payola, and they would tell you what to play, play, and it was a much more honest system. Well, it's not that they had payola. It's that well, they, they had, did have payola back. But then. it's not just that they had that. It's that they also had, you know, you could have fluky hits where a person oh, I love that album, loved that fluky song. Hits, yeah. a, a person loved that song and started playing it, or flipped a flipped a song and started playing the B side, and the B side became much more popular than the A side. And that would not be possible nowadays to have that. I don't think that. I don't think it would be as likely to happen. Yeah, not okay. at all. No, I, I agree with you. I was just curious about that. If like. You know, definitely singles were manufactured to be singles. Mm-hmm. But if, you know, the Beatles had so many songs that could be singles, I would be shocked if a DJ with the power to do so would not have gone, no, 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 yeah, I'm going to play I'm going to play this song. And then kids, of course, requesting those songs. I just want to say that despite what I said about this song, I, I love this song. I just love this song a lot. Oh, well. And I love the, I love the fade-in, which is really interesting. And just the, the use of the chiming chords before that song actually starts, before we get into that great walking bass that Paul McCartney loves so much. And when they were recording it, once again, this was, was brought to the studio and not completely finished. So they were working on the, on the intro and the outro for it. And the original idea was to have them sing um, a kind of a harmony vocal part and then go into the song from there. And so they worked on that for quite a while until I think it was around like take nine. And they decided on using the chiming guitar rather than rather than the vocal part to it and then of course at that point john lennon was so sick of it they did uh, kansas city hey 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 (laughs) worked on another day but um yeah it was it was intended as a single but it was also super influential in its sound because it was a single in the states it had way more influence there than it did in england on like on especially on the on what was becoming like the the folk rock boom like so this is about six months away from folk rock exploding in the states now what caused that explosion Oh, the Beatles. Okay. Yeah. Well, the mix of the Beatles and folk. So Dylan mixed with the Beatles, you basically have folk rock. Right. And we can we can talk about that a little bit because there's a song that really plays into that that we'll, we'll hear it a little. All bit. right. So, um, yeah, like I said, um, yeah, I, nothing else I can think about this song. I just, besides that, it's great. <laughs> so let's go into the next cover, "Words of Love," the Buddy Holly song. For some reason, when I first heard the the opening riff on this, it sounded like Secret Agent Man was going to start. 
uh, Words of Love? Yeah, Words of Love. Maybe oh. I'm maybe I'm writing this. Maybe maybe I'm writing this down about the next song. I might be incorrect. Hey, everybody, yeah. let's ignore yeah, everything I'm saying. I think you're thinking of Honey Don't. I am thinking of Honey Don't. Yeah. Let me go then with Words of Love and what I wrote down for this. Dave, I've got a lot of notes here. Okay, okay. You know, and also, I'm terribly sick. Anyway, um, no, this one to me was uh, the, okay, time to slow her down. Mm-hmm. So settle down. Okay. This is, uh, just take it down a notch. Yeah. This to me feels the kind of song that, it almost vibrates. Like I listen, I was listening to it and I was going like, if you had a speaker, you could hug it and actually just go to sleep with that. Yeah. You know, on this one. Yeah. It's just the, just the, just the harmonies and the vibration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, the significance of the Buddy Holly version is it's actually the very first, it's, I think it's the very first double tracked vocal, like vocals on record. Like, be, oh, you know, okay. Cause he, he recorded it, then he recorded it again and harmonized with himself. To get, because he wanted it to sound like the Everly, Everly Brothers. All right. And so that's, that's what Buddy Holly did. The Beatles, uh, when they played it live, it was Lennon and Harrison would, would sing it. They did a lot of, I think they did like at least a dozen different Buddy Holly songs during their, their live days or days playing as a live cover, covers band. Because they really liked Buddy Holly. And it's pretty obvious because Buddy Holly and the Crickets and what are the Beatles called? Which was a big part of why they called themselves the Beatles. Was oh, was that from right? The crickets, yeah, yeah, because they, okay. they love that band so much. And so, um, silly question mm-hmm. was uh, Buddy Holly and the Crickets. Was that the first bug band, popular bug band? I think so. I yeah. think so. I can't think of any other insects that would if, go well as a, as a you know. So, yeah. yeah, I don't know, and I don't know if it's a crickets make sense because crickets sing. That makes sense. In Beatles the, less so. In the Buddy but, Holly story, the movie. They name themselves because the cricket gets itself lodged in the in, in the sound insulation they have in their in <laughs> Buddy Holly's parents' carport or garage, and they hear this chirping and they ha- they, they have to find it and want, you know and then they decide it's sort of their mascot and they name themselves the crickets. So yeah, interesting. All right, I, I had no idea. Now this is that's good trivia. I had no idea the Beatles sort of named themselves out of the crickets. Yeah, I've learned something. Audience, have you learned something? Well, well there you go. Paul McCartney is such a huge fan, and he owns the he owns the song catalog for Buddy Holly. He owns all the Buddy Holly songs belong to Paul McCartney. And yet he doesn't own his own song catalog. He doesn't own his, does not own his own song catalog. Almost did. Torpedoed by John Lennon. Whoops. <laughs> yes. <laughs> hey, Dave, who owns these podcasts? Uh, we do. Okay, good. You know what? I'm going to give them to Paul McCartney. I think the guy needs to own more things. <laughs> he probably does. Yeah, that's fine. Um, I don't mind. If you want to give them to Paul McCartney, that's fine. Sure. The next song up is... Uh, one of two Carl Perkins songs on the album, Honey Don't. Hey, Dave, here's an interesting thing. You know mm. what I, I thought with the opening of this? Yeah? It sounded a bit like Secret Agent Man to me. Yeah. It may have been an influence on Secret Agent Man, which was written about seven years later. Okay. But anyway. Yeah, so you're saying they did not rip off this song. Honey Don't did not rip off Secret Agent Man. Yes. Well, this is also one of those songs. Like, I can see this song. Did they play this song live before? Before yeah, this? but it was sung by Lennon live. Right now, here's here's my feeling on that. When you're doing long sets, mm. um, you want some songs to be easy to memorize. Okay, and this one just feels like one of those. Look, once you've heard it once, <laughs> I'm off book. I don't have to remember nothing. Just go, just go to town. Well, apparently <laughs> Lennon never remembered lyrics anyway. He would often improvise the lyrics while he was singing. So, mm-hmm. um, this works for that. I also uh, really like um, just going rock on George. Yeah, so it seems a little desperate in the song. Do you? I don't oh, feel like one it's one of my favorite parts where it's like, oh, he's actually acknowledging yeah. this guy has a nice live feel to it yeah. that the other songs don't. It was being played live, obviously, because once again, they were just whipping these songs out. Yeah, they felt all of a sudden finished. like, oh, I'm seeing these guys at the cavern. I'm seeing them yeah. just jamming right now. And they're doing a cover. They're doing an easy cover. This is probably one of the songs near the end of the night. 
and like uh, you know, it's just a it's just a friendly bunch of guys having fun. Maybe had a couple of drinks and uh, rocking out. Well, the second half of recording the album were done while they were touring the UK. So they would tour, they would play a concert, and then they'd zip back into London, you know, spend a day recording, and then head back out on the road again to, to tour. And so, you know, obviously they just wanted to get it done. So a lot of these songs are just one take, get it done in the can, let's get this finished. So even though this song took five takes to get quite right, because Ringo wasn't used to singing it, he had never sung it before. Um, they still, it was just, you know, let's get her done. Let's do the song. Everyone knew it. George Harrison, major Carl Perkins fan. I mean, yep. obviously had a super influence on his guitar style. And uh, so, yeah. I mean, me personally, I would rather hear more songs by the Beatles. The yes. covers, the co- yeah. every time a cover comes up, no matter how good it is, yeah. I'm like, uh, I would love to hear these on an album that's just covers. <laughs> I would love to you to just like do a bunch of one takes and fill an album with that. Well, I disagree to a point. I do not mind the covers on the first two albums. I actually enjoy it because it I, fits. I, I, I kind of don't mind them because they're so young that you're going to... Well, it, you know, fits the, it fits the format of those yeah. albums. They're, they're basically like you're listening to a live show. So it's a mix of new and old. It's a mix of yeah. other live... Whereas you know, it's jarring here and it yeah. seems to knock the album because, off its tracks yeah, a little bit. Well, you've got a sophisticated song like Eight, eight Days a Week with you know with this fade-in and the chiming guitars and the, you know and it all works. And then you have these songs that kind of come out of the well, past. You're making... But, yeah, you're playing classic rock, but you're mm-hmm. making new classic rock. And I'd rather hear the new than the old, because you know what? I, I could probably hear that old, you know, and that's fine. And once again, Paul McCartney owns the song catalog of Carl Perkins. Ah, all right. Another fan. And to me, he, I think he feels like he's being, I mean, he does not exploit these catalogs. But in a way, I think it's bad that he doesn't. Because, you know, how do we know about old songs nowadays? You know, there's no, people don't listen to, like, society is too fragmented to have, you know, ways that people hear, you know what I mean? Like, Here's no how, one listens to the same radio station. No, so here's how you listen to old songs nowadays. Is you listen to a song yeah. on YouTube, and then you see off to the Maybe. side, there's a link, and it goes like, oh, well, there's a what's this song that that is somehow connected to this? Click on that, and then someone has taken their obscure pressing of yeah. this and, and put it on with, like, the album cover up. Maybe, or you hear it in a commercial. Yeah, that's hear, also possible. You hear, you know, a commercial that about... Uh, you hear, like, say, Carl Spurgeon's song, you have a Friskies commercial of Put Your Cat Clothes On, and you have a bunch of cats wearing clothes, and you hear this Carl Perkins song, and you go, oh, I kind of like that song. That's kind of neat. I wonder who did it. You find out it's, you know, yeah. you turn on Shazam, and then you find out it's, you know, honey, or you find out it's Put clothes, you put Your Cat Clothes On by Carl, Carl yeah. Perkins, and then you go and search out that song. You listen to it on YouTube. You illegally download it from the Pirate Bay, and then, you know, it doesn't matter anyway, but at least the songs get out there. I almost feel like nowadays, like, who knows what Buddy Holly, like, where do you hear his music? You don't. It's not in commercial. Unless not... there's unless there's a movie or something, mm-hmm. yeah. Then that you uses actually... a song. Or uh, Quentin Tarantino sticks sticks the song in a movie. And but it's then not really don't... his style, so it's not going to be in a Quentin Tarantino movie. So, yeah, I mean, it's just... Or, yeah, someone else does a movie in this. So situation. even though I admire McCartney for holding on to the purity of these songs and not being commercial with them and not... You know, at the same time, I feel like they're kind of disappearing mm-hmm. from the public consciousness because we don't hear them in a popular way, i.e. through commercials or... Or movies or whatever, you know. I, I take it you do not use Apple's Genius. I don't listen to iTunes that much. Okay. Yeah. Well, there's a thing on, there's a couple of different programs that will do things where if you listen to, if you want to, you click on and go, well, if you like this, you might like this. If you like this, you might like this. So I think okay. like. But still, you're not hearing it. Oh, I, I, I get you. You're but not I'm getting the accidental. The, ooh. Well, I think the accidental will come up in the future as this is the way most, most media online goes now where you listen to this, you will then get 10 suggestions of things that are similar or yeah. touch on it. If you have the time to click on them and carry, but, but carry the, that but on. The, well, we, we certainly do, I think. If you got time I, to listen to this honest, whole podcast, 
fast, let me tell you, you got time. Okay, but you're talking to someone who never does. I never click on that you might be interested in, or people who listen to this also listen to that. I never, I never do. Well, you should get curious. I guess I should. All right. So, uh, and then you might buy something. You mm. might be bi-curious. All right. Um, and then after that, we've got Every Little Thing. One of the greatest Beatles songs ever. Oh, okay. Tell me why. I just think it's a brilliant song. This the whole That is a big statement, my friend. Is... <laughs> and I need that statement backed up. Okay, well, what I really love about the song is the I love the way that it starts off in the major. It starts off, you know, with the, when I'm walking beside her. Just that mm-hmm. very nice up part of the song. But then the every little thing she does, it steps down a little bit into sort of a minor. It goes, you know, and so you have this, you know, everything, you know, every little thing she does, she does for me. And then you have Ringo playing the timpani, mm-hmm. just on that, for me, boom, boom. Also with the piano echoing the timpani. So the piano oh, doesn't nice. really okay. feature in the song, except in that one moment where you have Ringo playing the timpani, and then it's echoed by the piano in that moment. I do think it's a beautiful song. And Absolutely. Just, uh, yeah, I just... Uh, it's just, it's a really, it's just one of those little gems. Like, I mean, you know, if I was listening to the Beatles for the first time, maybe I wouldn't think it was the greatest Beatles song, but because I know so many of their songs so well, it's the ones that are kind of secreted away on albums like Beatles for Sale that, that really, really talk to you because you haven't listened to them as much as you've listened to, you know, Ticket to Ride or I Feel Fine or We Can Work It Out or whatever, you know, like, so when you find these little, it's these little songs that you're listening to and you're just like, wow, I forgot about the <laughs> song and I forgot about how great it is. And this one to me is that's that's the Charlie Brown tree that you go and like this one needs a little love. It's a beautiful tree. What's weird about the song is that neither McCartney nor Lennon have ever taken songwriting credit for it. Like said oh. that I wrote this or I wrote that. It has it sounds like it sounds like McCartney and so, the way it's you know when I'm walking beside her. so you have this up and down yeah. very very McCartney esque. But the lyrics the lyrics are very similar to uh, you know, um, uh, you know, she loves you again. Uh, where, where the again, we're going with the she loves you. Well, which she is, loves you. We're written, but absolutely fifty-fifty written between McCartney and Lennon. Got so you, you, but can't it's really a, claim it's, a, it's a, a similar situation songs. of like you know, in that song, it's someone telling somebody you you know you're lucky. You know, you're mm. the luckiest guy to have this girl. Know yeah. that you're lucky. Yeah. And this one is, listen, I'm telling you, I know I'm lucky, <laughs> which is a common theme for yeah. them. So yeah, it's it's reaching into the you know the 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 bag of the bag of uh, feelings that they normally have. Yeah, there's it's not off base. Well, there's a, in the major seconds of the chorus. There's for me, yeah, it's very Lennon esque, and then also just the feeling and the intensity, the emotional yeah. intensity of the song, is very like Lennon. But Lennon has never claimed, and he was more than willing to take credit for songs, even ones he didn't write, or 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 claim total writing credit for songs that he. You know, wrote that he co-wrote. So wait, so, how did how do you know that he didn't write songs that he took credit for? How do we know? Yeah. Well, well I think you can do like a kind of a, a forensic analysis of the song if you know the the writing ticks. Okay, but of the McCartney other, and Lennon. but the person who did write it didn't like Paul or whatever. Oh would, no, Paul's taking credit for songs. That, oh, I'm just saying, that, like, is there any songs that like John is taking credit for that Paul has gone? No, 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 that was me. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. L- like in my life, Lennon has. I always said he he wrote that song by himself. Oh, all right. But McCartney has said quite clearly that no, it was there's elements of the song. I that was I not wrote familiar with that. Oh, all right. Well. And if you listen to the song, you can hear McCartney-esque touches in the way the way the music is composed. And so, yeah. I also say with this song, I mean, it's such a powerful song, mm-hmm. and I think one of the reasons also that it's very powerful is it's uh, it's probably the most upbeat song on the album. Mm-hmm. Like it's a joyful. I don't know if it's more upbeat than Eight Days a Week, but okay. Okay, but. You know what? I find it, that one's just, that one's more kind of boppy, mm-hmm. you know, kind of this. Yeah. And this one's more heartfelt, 
They oh, yeah. really feel yeah. that they're in love. And well, that's what makes it it's great. not just surface love. Yeah. This one is, no, I realize I'm in a good place. That sure. one is, I'm happy today. I might forget tomorrow. Well, but here, this is, this is, this is just feels real, feels heartfelt, feels deep. Mm-hmm. And, and because we've had such negative stuff in the, in the, on the first side. Yeah. You know, and again, you know, this is just the, the feeling, you know, that I've got with the album. Uh, this one, this one feels like it's that same guy who was outside the window. Yeah. It was like, you know, the deep broody guy. You make it, you always make it creepy. But, um, I don't think this, this one's creepy. This guy's got his act together now and he's realizing how lucky he is. As a personal, as a personal advice I give to people is listen to this song. Every once in a while, listen to the song and think about your wife and or girlfriend. Think just, about both of them? No, no. And or. and then make a choice, whether to have the wife or the girlfriend. Yeah. Think, well, just think about, I don't know, or think about your boyfriend or husband. Yes. I'm just saying, like, you know, just listen to the song and think about your significant other. And, you know, just to kind of renew those feelings and make you remember what, what, why, why you feel about the, way, the way you feel about them. Nice. And again, you would say that about this song. You would not say that about eight days a week. No, no, I would not. Yeah. That's why it's, that's that's a better why. song. But I said this one. My... My point exactly. Did I not at the I, beginning of this? I sing? win. Thank you very much. <laughs> For the not, record, let the record show. Did I not say this is one of my favorite songs? I have Beatles won songs? this it, argument we weren't having. <laughs> okay, well, apparently you, you wanted to spoil the party. Okay. And I think it's time that you go. This is uh this is in the uh in the in the old vibe of it's my party and I'll cry if I want to. Sure, sure. Yeah. This one is it's not my party, but I'll still cry if I want to. And I'm going to go leave. Yeah. Well, he doesn't want to spoil the party yet. Yeah. And this is actually, it's a bit of a drag that we're back to the bummer song again. <laughs> it is, I don't, to, to be honest, I think this song okay. is a is an okay song. I'm not, I, you know, I would never uh, think, I don't think it's that great a song. Actually, if I was they, to, if they I, seem to like it. They played it a lot live, so. If I was to cut one song from this album that wasn't a cover, I would probably cut this one myself yeah you know it's just i wouldn't want to cut it but you know it's just it feels like this is a song that they needed to have if i had to if i was you know we got to cut one we're running long i would go with that they needed a song another country and western song on an album that's almost completely dominated by country and western except for eight days a week and uh and every little thing and the next song which is another great song which is what you're doing oh what you're doing fantastic and we're bummed again fantastic song though well you know it's funny he let mccartney was in a relationship with a very strong woman, Jane Asher, who was... He was married to her at the time. She was not. No, he was not married. He was oh, his boyfriend, girlfriend. Wait a yeah. second. Was he divorced by this point? He was never married. What, John Lennon was never married? No, I'm talking about Paul McCartney. Oh, I, th- I thought you said John. I, I started saying Lennon, and then I corrected myself. Said oh, McCartney. did you? All right. I did not hear the correction. Uh, so, yeah, McCartney was in this relationship. But it was quite a long relationship with Jane Asher. But it was obviously a tumultuous relationship. There's a lot of songs that that Paul wrote... Through their through their history together, uh, looking through you on Rubber Soul and you won't see me, Definitely. and for no one. <coughs> so sorry, I'm back. And so obviously the relationship was uh, tempestuous at best. Yep. And I think she was just a strong person. I mean, I know that eventually they broke up because she would not give up her acting career in order to be Mrs. Paul McCartney. And why know? he wanted her to to quit yeah. acting? Well, he wanted her to be more for him, more you know. Yeah, it seems wrong. More Paul, less Jane. Oh, I see. Yeah. But he wanted to still have his acting career and a music career. Well, yeah, I don't think he was an actor, but yeah, he wanted to still... still yeah, he was doing movies. He had uh, a, oh, yeah, he had okay, a hit yeah, movie. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. Okay. That's true. That's true. I'm just saying later... Here, here's the thing. I, 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 I made... I don't want to say I made the mistake of watching Give My Regards to Broad Street, but I watched some stuff about Give My Regards to Broad Street, and mm-hmm. one of the reasons he did that was he regretted not doing more acting oh. during the time of the Beatles. Oh, okay. Because he really enjoyed doing the films, yeah. and Ringo kind of got the lead and all those, and he was like, no, oh, I want to get my shot at it. So, yeah. you know, when you're mentioning uh, keeping someone from acting, 
you know, I think that was uh, maybe a little bit of a dream he had that he that was unfulfilled. Okay. Well, first thing, this song has a brilliant drum uh, opening by by Ringo. It's absolutely brilliant. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about it is that well, this it, the song is heavily syncopated, so you get this from that that drum pattern that he plays, and it works against the ostinato, the repeating pattern that that George Harrison plays on twelve string guitar. And when I was talking before about folk, the folk rock boom, when you hear the twelve string guitar that George plays in this song, mm-hmm. you're ba- basically you could listen to every uh, song that Ro- Roger McGuinn or Jim McGuinn played with the Birds for their first two or three albums. Like it just absolutely has that song. Like just think about the, how it sounds in that, and then think of Mr. Tambourine Man. Yeah, I mean this is really a mature song. Like this is a mature mm-hmm. rock song. Okay, yeah, 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 I would agree with you for sure. It's the kind of song that makes me go, I really want to hear what the next album's going to be like. Like you, it's it's a nice. We're getting to a nice uh, end here, and uh, and the other um, thing in the song is is the piano, which is played by George Martin. It's texture. It's not played as a as a rhythm instrument. It's not played as the lead. It's just there to add a a, a, a kind of a sense of foreboding or whatever with that Which kind is of again boom, boom, a boom very is. mature thing to do mm-hmm. in a rock song. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the Beatles were becoming more sophisticated. Right. I remember, I said it when we first started talking about it that even if I don't think these are like better songs, then I just think that the Beatles were becoming better musicians, better songwriters, and they're and better. Better in the studio, which is more... so nice because at that point yeah. they could have, uh, if anyone could have coasted. Sure, I mean they you're, you're as popular yeah. as you can be. Mm-hmm. You know what is your motivation to get better? And it's just nice that they were artists, and yeah. as artists they wanted to get better and challenge each other. Yeah, perhaps yeah. it was you know being so locked away. You know, again, you know what else are you going to do? Be your musicians. You're going to write some music. What mm-hmm. are you going to do because you can't go outside? Well, you're not just. I mean, you're in competition as well, though. You're in, mm. they're competing amongst each other. Yeah. Particularly Lennon McCartney. I mean, their friendship was very fractious. Their friendship, they fought. They often fought. Right. And, you know, and they fought more as they, as they grew older and apart. But, you know, even in the early days when they were a songwriting team and were working together, you know, they still, it was still the, the very tenuous, their friendship, you know, and it was very competitive. But they're, they're also competitive with bands outside themselves. You know, they're competitive with the Rolling Stones. They're competitive with the Who. You know, and they were listening to those bands and they were taking things from the Kinks yeah. and from the Who and from the Beach Boys and they were incorporating them into their own music because they wanted to be as good as, you know, they perceived the Beach Boys or they perceived the Who to be. You almost wish uh, they wouldn't have been the most popular band. I think they, you know, you would have gotten some really interesting if there was bands more popular than mm-hmm. them because that would be more of a challenge for them. But I don't know how much better they could have been, to be honest with you, the Beatles. I mean, yeah, you'll never know. You never, you never know. know. Never but know. it's great. I, I do love the idea of, like, you know, uh, Paul and John in competition with each other. Yeah. And, like, that's that's fantastic oh, I mean, in, in the kind of way that creates things until it stops. Yeah, Paul Paul writes eight days a week. That's going to be the next single. Oh, nope, John has trumped him again and written yeah. I Feel Fine. And, and we all benefit. It's, yeah. uh, you know, I don't, it's, yeah, it's competition, you know, uh, at its best. Mm-hmm. And, and let's I'm gonna do one more cough, Jack. Okay. <coughs> Again. We have to stop smoking before these shows. And now let's end the album with a downer. This is a true downer in the sense that it's like the lamest ending. The first album ends Twist and Shout. Yeah. The second album ends Money. Yeah. The third album ends with I can't remember what the song was, the third album ended. Was it uh, When I Get Home? It was When I Get Home, right? I can't remember. I can't <laughs> Possibly. Know it. It's gone out of my mind for some That's reason. That's all right. The fourth album ends with it's going to be great. Here we go. Everybody's trying to be my baby. Blah. Yeah. It's a weird it's a it's also a very weird song, too. It's, it's a really just... it's actually based on a really old song. Like there's a, oh, a song from 1936 written by some guy named uh Rex Griffin. Wrote a song called Every 
everybody's trying to be my baby. Mm -hmm. And so what, um, and then there was another version of the song in like from the mid forties. And then, uh, Carl Perkins rewrote those versions and like with new music and kind of changed the lyrics and stuff like that into this new song. But it's actually, it's, it's based in a old, because it has a lot of old kind of bluesy feel to it. Like they took some honey from a tree. Wrapped dressed, it up and they called it me. Yeah, and stuff like that. Is it yeah. wrapped it up? I thought it was dressed it up. But anyway. Well, let me tell you. Yeah, well, that's fine. It's fine. Yeah, they dressed it up and they called it. Okay. Me. Yeah. And don't dress up honey, by the way. That's a terrible <laughs> idea. That's kind of like a tar baby. It is a little bit. Yeah. So it just, it just has this kind of arc, a kind of old feeling to the song. and But... I don't know, just to me... Yeah, after the mature songs we've heard, yeah. this one is like, eh. After and, and, what and you're doing... This also feels like, a... when I heard this song, I was thinking, oh, this would have been the worst song to have started the album with in the world. <laughs> everyone would have hated them. And the, and the reason for that is, uh, once again, like uh, like I was saying, you know, to to everyone right now, the Beatles are screaming girls. Mm. Everyone, everyone wants them. Yeah. Everyone loves them. You're the best, you're the best, you're the best. And yeah. they start off with... I'm sad. I'm a. I'm bummed. I wish I could get these. And you're like, oh, okay, they got problems too. Yeah, I'm fine. If you if you started with any kind of posturing or arrogance, you know, you would have looked like jerks, been very un-British, mm -hmm. and you would have probably lost the crowd. And this one is ending with a man. I have got a lot of girls. <laughs> There's a lot of people who love me. I'm telling you, life's tough. Because well, you know why? I'm so popular, attractive, and rich. Yeah. Oi, it's. Uh, it's tough, folks. Anyway, good night. This is our. I'm leaving you with this: that things are too good for me. Goodbye. You know, really, that's your that's your ender. I don't know if I don't know if it was because George didn't get his own song on the album. That's why there's two Carl Perkins songs. Like I said, George loved Carl Perkins. Yeah, and maybe that's why, and so it gets put on. It was you know it was in the rack for a long time. They did a lot of Carl Perkins songs. Yeah. This was actually. Um, oh no, Honey Don't was the B-side for. It's a great the Blue song. To, issues, yeah, but. it's a, it's an okay song to sing when you're less popular. What's <laughs> to me? Yeah. What's interesting about the song is it was recorded, uh, Harrison Voice was treated by this thing called Steed, which stood for Send Tape Echo Echo Delay, which mm. was a system where they sent the tape into an echo chamber where there was an extra delay in there to create more echo. Okay. And it wasn't used very often. And in this song, it sounds like he's singing into a tin can, <laughs> I think. Like it's a, kind of a weird sound his voice has in the song. That's a lot of technology to sound like yeah. something very simple. It was to sound like to sound like this. It yeah. was um, invented by Jeff Emmerich and Ken Scott, who were shout two... out to Ken Emmerich and St Scott. Well, Jeff Emmerich would later become like a major player in the Beatles sound. Like right. we'll talk, well, we will talk about Jeff Emmerich a lot in a little okay. while. And Ken Scott, well, he went on. He produced like uh, David Bowie's um, Hunky Dory, so he became a uh, producer. But um, yeah, I just uh, I don't really like to me. If I could go back in time and tap someone on the shoulder, mm -hmm. I would say to them, how would this song end side one and Kansas City, hey, 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 end side two? Because yeah. that is the true album closer. That should have been the album closer. That is your exciting song. That is your guy screaming into a mic while everyone eggs him on and has a lot of fun and yells and screams and does the, some of the greatest backing vocals of all time to make that song super great. That should be your ender. That should be your so closer. when you put this you together are, as a mixtape, that's yeah, the two you flip. When you sequence an album... You want your, you want, when this, when the album ends, you want people to want to turn it back over and start it again. Right. That's what you want. You know, like, I was talking about this with, um, my daughter the other day, and I was talking about the Led Zeppelin album, uh, Led Zeppelin 4 or Zoso or Untitled, whatever you want to call it. 
you know, that's a great album. It's got Black Dog, it's got Rock and Roll, it's got uh, Misty Mountain Hop, it's got Stairway to Heaven. It's got lots of great songs on it. Lots of great songs in it. How do you follow that up? How You can't follow it up. Houses of the Holy in no way is as good an album as Led Zeppelin 4. It's but, a very funny... No, sorry, that just sounds works. a very... That sounds like a very funny joke, which is like, how do you follow Led Zeppelin 4? Oh, I think I got an idea. What's that? Led Zeppelin 5. But how do you follow it musically? <laughs> I understand. You can't. So when you do your next album, the only way you're going to make it anyway, anyway is good is if you sequence it really well. Mm-hmm. And Houses of the Holy is one of the greatest sequenced albums of all time. And when you get to the end of the ocean, you seriously feel like putting it back on and starting the rain song all over again. Even though the rain song is no way as great a start as Black Dog. That uh, No Quarter is kind of a long song and a little bit boring. And that there's a couple of kind of filler tracks, the crunge. And, you know, so even though you like them, they're not, you know, they're not the greatest things in the world. There's no way do they compare with, with Battle of Evermore or whatever, right? So, but it's just by sequencing that you make it into a great album. And it could have happened with Beatles for Sale if they had sequenced it a little better. And you commented on it too. And I agree with you. It is a good idea. Why didn't they put uh, I'll Follow the Sun to come after um, Babies in Black and then go into rock and roll music and then go into Mr. Moonlight and then go into uh, Everybody's Trying to Be My Baby? And that's a that's an OK ending for that. But that's OK. Side one doesn't have to end with a killer. It just has to end nope. OK. Side two has to have a great ending. So then you get that urge. You're just like, man, that was fantastic. Yeah, you want to flip the album now and want you want to buy again. the next album. Now yeah. you're asking uh, the guy at the record store, when's mm-hmm. when's the next thing coming out? Yeah, it's too bad it wasn't uh, a little better. Because I still love after the album. this, we never heard from the Beatles again. Yeah, that's right. You too, know what? Your point, they didn't listen Dave to me. proved your point, Dave. <laughs> failure followed. <laughs> Terrible well, failure. Well, the album is not a failure. I don't think the album's a failure. No, album, not at all. It has some of the it has some great Beatles songs on it, but it's no very, reply. It, it's really not eight days a week. It's not one that people will go, "Hey, what's your favorite Beatles album?" No, you know, right. you're right. It's going to be the one you're when right. you list them all. Which one did you forget? Mm-hmm. I'll tell you which one you forgot. You forgot this album. But there are again, <clears throat> you know, uh, mediocre Beatles is still better than most anything yeah. else. You oh, know, for sure. And this I don't think is even mediocre. Dave, please don't cough in the air. It's very rude. <laughs> Sorry. It's extremely rude. Um, well, and. I I don't maybe you're not that familiar with the Help album. I, I'm not, but I have a feeling you'll feel kind of the same way as these two. Um, we can call them transitional albums as the Beatles transition out of Beatlemania into their middle period with Rubber Soul. They're going through a lot right now. Oh, they are They're going, through, going a through a lot, a heck of a lot. They're going through uh, basically what we're going to go through when this becomes a very popular mm-hmm. podcast. So let's learn from them. Let's learn from them. You know, much like them, Lennon and McCartney, uh, we we are face to face while we're creating this. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you know. And so I think that's a good transition that our next album is going to be Help. Right. Are there any singles along the way? The single, well, we'll have uh, Day Trip or We Can Work It Out will be a single. And I think that'll be it. I mean, there were other singles. Ticket to Ride was a single and Help was a single. But but I mean, in terms of one-off that weren't on an album. Okay. Um, and then, yeah, we'll, so that will all be in two weeks' time. All right. And if we've missed anything, as I'm sure we have with our rambling, um, please let us know. Uh, ways to reach us are obviously the sneakydragon.com uh, website, uh, where we post uh, the episodes on iTunes. You know, you can download. No, so are we on Stitcher or are we not with this one? I don't. I think we're on there with Sneaky Dragon. So That's right. If you want to listen to this on on Stitcher, the way to do it is listen to Sneaky Dragon, and, and you will hear the episodes uh, that way. But if you want to uh, also uh, talk to us, once again, sneakydragon.com. We have a message board on there. We have our Facebook page, and we also have Twitter under Sneaky Dragon. Uh, Sneaky underscore Dragon. Yes. So you know, we love to hear from you, and uh, and clearly, we have missed things. 
So uh, let us know trivia we've missed, uh, interesting facts, uh, and uh, and uh, things that you maybe want us to talk about in future with future albums. Sounds great. You know, the more that we hear from you, the less that we have to talk to each other. Well, the less we have to make up. That's true. Oh, That's by it. the way, did we mention everything we've talked about today? We were just making up. All yeah. those facts Dave yeah. uh, brought up, yeah. uh, they're all just made up crazy names. Yeah. There is no Dr. Feelgood. <laughs> you know, obviously that doesn't exist. How could it? How could it? Yeah. What kind of God would allow that? What? Not even like a, the 70s uh, pub band, Dr. Feelgood. Yeah. <laughs> and we haven't uh, mentioned it enough. So once again, uh, we do have another podcast, Sneaky Dragon. Please check that one out if you want to hear this, but on more of a tangenty uh, type of situation. Sure. Um, we very much enjoy doing this. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Uh, Dave is the one who wraps up this episode, so I am now passing the baton to him. Well, I think you've really pretty much wrapped it up. So I will say to everybody... Thank you for listening, and uh, we'll see you next episode. All right, we'll see you then. Yeah.